church has been silent for way too long. That's part of the problem. When we're silent, somebody else is going to speak. Uh, ignorance, this is one of my many sayings, ignorance and innocence are not the same thing. And sometimes as parents, we think if we just, if we don't ever talk about it, if we don't ever say anything about it, if we just act like it doesn't exist, that we're going to protect our children. But actually what we're doing when we do that is we're making them vulnerable because they're going to ask questions. They're curious. They have a body. They understand there's a difference between men and women. They know this instinctively. That's the way God made them. And they're curious. And curiosity killed the cat. And it sometimes kills people. And so when we don't provide a solid biblical foundation for this, then there's a void. And then somebody's going to step in and fill the void with bad information. Or they're going to just try to figure it out themselves. Or they're not going to see the dangers They haven't thought about it, okay? So they reach a point and their hormones are going and they're with their boyfriend or their girlfriend and next thing you know, we're in trouble and it took over and we didn't know what to do because we hadn't really thought about it. So we'll cover it up, we'll hide it, we'll lie about it and we got all kinds of problems coming in. So godly information placed in a godly context that sets forth that which is true, beautiful, and pure makes sexuality attractive in the right context. So that's going to be a big part of what we have to learn to do is think about this in the right context. There is a bad side, there are dangers, there is sin, there is sexual sin, just like there's other kinds of sin. Sin is what? What? Rebellion against God. What else? How else would you say what is sin? Okay, exactly. From the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it's not doing what God said to do. Did God, has God said to do certain things regarding sex? Like be fruitful and multiply? <laughs> be intoxicated with the love of your wife and always be satisfied with her breast? The Bible said that. I'm quoting the Bible. And it didn't apologize when it said that. The Bible's not embarrassed about it. Who invented sex? And what did he call it? Oh, that's good. Is it always good? Well, not, it's good when we use it the way he said to use it, and it's not when we don't. What's that, David? <laughs> uh, oh, I know that joke. <laughs> um, all right, but that said... Okay, many aspects of sexuality are personal and private. And we're not going to talk about those. Am I going to have to break you all up? But 
we, we sometimes, I think, confuse uh, personal and private and, there, and think, therefore, we can't say anything. There's a great deal to be said, and I plan on saying some of it. Uh, there's way more information than we're going to be able to cover tonight in the Bible about this. Um, I mean, we could just do an exposition of Song of Solomon. would uh, be pretty racy. Um, but we're not going to do that tonight. One of the, but again, one of the myths about sexuality is that it is only private and that it does not impact others. It's just for consenting adults. That might be one argument. Oh, well, as long as it's just us agreeing among ourselves, we can do whatever we want to do. That's false. Or sometimes Christians being more prude than God uh, we say we're not going to talk about it at all uh, because there's parts of it that are private and personal. Uh, so we're not even going to address the parts that aren't. Um, it is essential for us to embrace the sexuality that God has given us in a way that is pure, that is godly, and is not ashamed. That's why I wrote the word on the board. Not ashamed of that. And when we teach our kids to be ashamed of it or that it's dirty or uh, we whisper about it when we say it or we turn red, um, we're sending a message that's, that kind of says there's something bad about this, this thing that God called good. So everybody here is a boy or a girl. We're plumbed differently. God did that too. He made them male and female. And together, they're made in God's image. And he brought them together to complement one another. Now, it's important we start with an understanding of theology with any subject. Whatever subject we want, if we were going to talk about economics, we'd want to know, what does God say? either directly or indirectly about this. So we need to start tonight, like we start with every other subject, with a theology of sex. Now, theology is what? How God thinks. It's technically the study of God, but if we're going to study God, we've got to know what God thinks. We've got to know God, and we've got to know what he thinks. Does God think things about sex? So my job, I can't think everything that God thinks about sex because I'm not God, but I can think the things that he told me that he revealed about of what he knows about sex and what he thinks about it. And my job is not to just think my own thoughts about it. My job is, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, is to make sure my thinking about sex matches God's thinking. And the way I get that is how? From where? From the Bible, right? I don't just imagine what does God think about it. That gets me in trouble. I need to go and say, what does he say about it? So again... Theology has to do with our ideas, our thinking, and ideas have consequences. And so we have to understand what sexuality is, why it was created, what is its purpose, what are its goals, 
what are its benefits, and what are its dangers. And we need to be having those conversations, by the way, with our teenagers, and, and uh, probably earlier rather than later. And if you think they're not thinking about it, you're wrong. Um, and so um, these are all things the Bible clearly addresses, and it's our obligation as creatures to conform our thinking to his. It's not just our sexuality that is impure. Our thinking is impure. It's corrupted. We're fallen. It's called the noetic effects of sin. Sin affected how I think. It clouded my reason. Makes me blind to certain things, and that's why I need God to open my eyes to see wondrous things in his law and to comprehend things that I might not otherwise know. And so, for example, can you look at a Men, can you look at a woman? And women, can you look at a man and know by looking? You can look and say there's a difference. There's a difference physically. We're built differently. Uh, You don't have to be a genius to figure out what the parts are for. Um, But do you know that there has to be a covenant for this to work properly? Where do we learn that? Do we know that God has given us boundaries that where it's safe for this to operate and and to be good, and that if we go beyond those boundaries, that it becomes very, very dangerous and destructive. You don't know that just by looking at the opposite sex. Uh, And so if you don't know that, what's likely to happen to you? And so if our sexuality is ever going to be pure, it'll be because our thinking was first made pure. We're going to begin uh, to have a biblical perspective on the issue, a way of looking at this. And we're going to, as a result, we're going to know God. We're going to know what, know what he thinks. We're going to come to know something about ourselves and our proclivities and therefore where some of the dangers are. And we're going to look at it very differently. And we're going to have to learn how to think about other people and about the opposite sex and the same sex and so we've got to know what he sa- God says. We have to adopt those ideas for ourselves. We have to root out all the wrong concepts and ideas because we have, where do we pick up these ideas other than the Bible? Where do we, where do we get our ideas about sex? Culture. What do we mean by culture? Be specific. What, just name some. There's a bunch of them. Okay, media, okay, and now we have the internet. Boy, high definition. Popular figures, leaders. Um, so we get misconceptions uh, that are put out there. So we have, for example, the image of the sexy man or woman in Hollywood that is put forward, Uh, what happens to that person uh, in most cases when they're 10 years older and have put on 20 pounds? They just disappear, right? They've been replaced by five more. There has been. They're now on, uh, you know, the tabloids uh, with some aerial uh, photo from helicopter somewhere with them waddling on the beach. 
and uh, maybe. Basically, they're forgotten because they stopped being this false image of sexuality that's airbrushed that we want to put out to sell sex because sex is often about money and power and those kinds of things. It's not what God says it should be. It's a misuse of it. Um, So in the beginning, um, we need to, that's always the place to start. Let's just go at, uh, we're going to look at the book of Genesis for a second. Sexuality is central to humanity. It's not an addendum. It's not a little side thing. It's actually one of the central things. That's true of human history. It's in the very first chapter of the Bible. All the important things are in the first 11 chapters of the Bible. So God created, uh, Genesis 1, 27, 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God says, I'm going to make you male and female. Now I want you to make babies. I want you to have sex. Right out of Genesis 1. There it is. So to try and teach history, for example, human history, without any reference to the role of sexuality is to leave out one of the major elements necessary to understand human history. Sexual sin, sexual impurity is a very powerful and central theme that runs throughout the story of mankind. It would be hard to overestimate how big a part sexuality plays in our individual lives, in our families, our churches, our communities, indeed in the whole world. Um, you know, there's parts of this that I find humorous that you might not, but it just it just seems kind of funny when I think about six billion people and realize that that's a lot of sex all the time. And it wasn't just one act of sex to have one baby. There was usually a lot of practice runs. You can laugh. It's okay. Break the tension. John, break the tension. No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, the, uh, it involves everything from procreation to its effect on marriage and personal relationships. It has power to destroy lives. It drives many decisions that people make. And therefore, it's critical that we understand the nature of sexuality. So God created our bodies He made our sexuality, and he has a lot to say about it. So let's also read Genesis 2, 18 through 25. And the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he'd call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper, found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib, which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. 
Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So the state uh, prior to the fall was nakedness, man and woman, and no shame. So that tells us where sexuality begins. Beautiful, good, unashamed, transparent, no big deal. So, uh, this maleness and femaleness was essential for mankind to accomplish the task of filling the earth and ruling the earth. They were made basically a king and a queen to have dominion over the earth. To, and so, and in fact, they're being fruitful and multiplying, having more little images of God uh, were to fill the earth, to rule over the, the earth to God's glory. So when the two were brought together, they became one flesh, united physically and spiritually to fill the earth with more godly men and women. And so this uniting of husband and wife, this becoming a one flesh, is, is more than just a metaphor. It's more than a picture. And, and, and when we see uh, a situation where someone loses a spouse, you know, there's something mystical. Just like when I always say there's something magic happens when, as a pastor, I say, I now pronounce you husband and wife, because I have these four here, maybe others in the room. Yes, 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 I see those quite a few. Okay, so I took two, two individuals, I say I, I took the words, like God said, let there be light, and there was light. I said, I now pronounce you husband and wife, and they were husband and wife. The two now covenantally became one, and then they consummated that marriage by having sex, and the two became one flesh, and it's mystical, isn't it? Anybody that's married knows this. Something magic happened. It's weird in a good way. It's inexplicable. And it's, a, and it's an ongoing process of growing and maturing. And the longer you've been married, if suddenly that is broken through death, you now are in a situation, Carolyn said to me the other day, she was talking about you know, after Reese died, she said, I had to redefine myself. I didn't know who I was anymore. And so you, you might, an analogy here, it's kind of a weak analogy, I think, but if, if I was in an accident, I lost, lost my arm, I'd still be me, but I wouldn't, something, it just isn't the same. It's just not right. I'd have to readapt and how I thought about myself and how I functioned. But it's, more, it's way more than that. Um, and so... Um, <clears throat> Men and women are made to correspond to each other, uh, united physically and spiritually. Uh, they, uh, Malachi says in Malachi 2.15, but did he not make them one, husband and wife, having a remnant of spirit, and why one? He seeks godly offspring. So he's brought these two together, and, and he says one of the purposes is just like in Genesis 1, is to be fruitful and multiply. And so um, before the fall, this untainted uh, sexuality provided a bond for family and society, the foundation for community. 
It was and remains a powerful force in human history, and to ignore that fact is perilous. Uh, The book of Hebrews says the marriage bed is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. In other words, the fire in the fireplace in marriage bed, good. Great things happen. Covenant bond, babies, pleasure, life, recreation. We'll, we'll talk about some of this later. Um, take, it, take the fire out of the fireplace and outside of marriage, burn the house down. I'll have some other analogies later. So, what's the purpose of sex? Um, we want to talk about two purposes, uh, ultimate and subordinate. So what is the ultimate purpose of sex and what are the subordinate purposes of sex? So there's one overarching purpose and... Um, It's caught up in the origin, bound to the origin. The creation of human beings is male and female. That account and subsequent scriptural revelations suggest a very clear ultimate purpose for human sexuality. And so what is the ultimate purpose? Nope. Nope. Those are both subordinate. Man's chief end, to glorify God, okay? Now, when I say this, this is going to, obviously, if that's the case, if sex, if God gave us our sexuality primarily, ultimately, to glorify Him, then the next thing i got to know is, well, then what does He say about it? It's to serve Him. Not me. Do I get anything? Yeah, that's going to be subordinate. But first and foremost, if it's for his glory, then I need to be asking, okay, how do I glorify God with my sexuality? Can I dishonor God with my sexuality? So when I remember this, then when I'm, you know, if if you're dating, if you've got a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you're supposed to be glorifying God with your body with your sexuality, and that's going to put limits on what you can and can't do. Also, within marriage, if sex is not just about you and about subordinate things, but about the glory of God, that's going to affect how you treat your spouse, how you make love, and perhaps other limiting factors. And so... Sex, gender, manhood, womanhood, those are all aspects of sexuality. All of it ultimately exists for the glory of God. This is not merely a theological deduction. It is the explicit teaching of Scripture. God defines the means by which our sexuality will glorify Him, and He spells it out in both special and natural revelation. Natural revelation is the creation. Some things are just made evident. That's a man, that's a woman. You don't have to be a genius to figure out 
certain things you can deduce from that. But then we have the Bible, which is special revelation that is even more particular. And so we need to pay careful attention to both. So, for example, Romans 1 talks about people abandoning the natural use of the woman for an unnatural sexual relation in homosexuality. In 1 Corinthians 6, 13 through 18, God reveals that the human body's design reveals some of its purposes. Foods for the stomach, food is for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual morality. Now, you have to kind of back up and unpack this. But basically what he's saying is, uh, because you're attached to Christ, if you go out and attach yourself to someone who's not your wife or your husband in sexual intimacy, you've now attached Christ to them. You don't, that's not glorifying God with your body. That's, uh, so this revelation is no less clear with sexual intimacy than it is with eating. The stomach was made for food. The male and female anatomy clearly were made for their own purpose. What could possibly be wrong with using our body then according to that purpose? So this was an argument that people would use to justify immorality. Hey, God made sex. I mean, he, he made me want to have sex, and he made her want to have sex, so why can't we just have sex? We're consenting adults. It's natural, right? And Paul is arguing no, because you were made first and foremost to glorify God with your body. That's your primary use. And so Paul exposes the foolishness of this argument by pointing out that the body is not, was not made for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. He doesn't question the subordinate use of the body for sexual intimacy, but he does say that the body exists for the Lord, which is the ultimate end. So we keep that overarching fact. Now we can look at subordinate uses. So by focusing only on the subordinate end of the body, the Corinthians had missed the ultimate end, which is God's glory. And so they misconstrued how the subordinate ends must always work in the service of the ultimate. So everything here has to serve this. So our sexuality is not to be expressed for our own sake, but for God's sake. This means shunning every sexual union outside the covenanted union of one man and one woman. And when we venture outside of this, we do so at great peril to ourselves and to others. Since the body exists for the Lord, its proper use must be under the Lordship of Christ. So let's talk about the subordinate purposes. You say bonding? Is that you? Okay. 
We talk about being united. The two become one flesh. This bonding together. There's something that happens. You know, here's what happens when couples are dating and they decide to have sexual activity with each other. Suddenly they're in love. Isn't that surprising? Yeah, but y'all don't agree about this, 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 or this. Well, I know, but we're in love. What happened? We got things out of order, and we stopped using our brains, and we started using our bodies, and our hormones start driving the car. So when we get things out of order, we're not thinking clearly, and we, we mistake that for love. Because a bonding has taken place, but now it's taken place in the wrong order, and we got a problem. And that problem manifests itself in, uh, in some uh, unpleasant ways, as we'll see in a minute. We'll talk about why when we get these out of order, uh, it, it doesn't work very well. So um, uh, Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Malachi 2.14, She is your companion and your wife by covenant. A covenant is a, like a contract. It's a, it's a binding agreement. It's a commitment. It has duties. It has responsibilities that go with. I'll, that's why we have wedding vows. So for better or for worse, richer or poorer. I'm, I promise to be faithful to you and you only. Nobody else is coming into this. This is just us. Um, procreation, making babies. Be fruitful and multiply, right? Um To avoid sin, sexual sin. Um, God says, yes, I gave you sexual desire, now I'm going to give you an outlet for that that's appropriate. And, um, and so, um, 1 Corinthians 7.2, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. And then... Anybody want to guess what the last one there is? I heard that. Speak up. Loud. Nothing wrong with pleasure if it's not sinful. Pleasure. Proverbs 5.18. Rejoice with the wife of your youth. Uh, Proverbs 5.18. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth as a loving deer and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured, literally intoxicated with her love. It's okay to get drunk on love if it's your wife or your husband, but nobody else. But if you try to have sex with somebody that's not your wife or your husband, you will get drunk there too. You'll, you'll be out of control. 
I didn't mean to. Well, that's the problem. You got to mean not to. Because the best of people get in trouble when they play near the edge and a little puff of wind comes up and they fall off the cliff. So, those are the subordinate. Remember, we're still talking theology here. Uh, The Apostle Paul says that the mystery of marriage is great. He says, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Again, we're still talking the theology of sex. And by mystery, Paul means that the meaning of marriage is something that in some ways was hidden, but now has been revealed in the gospel. So the gospel is caught up in this. That's why when we mess with sex and we do it, we do it our way and not God's way, we're messing with the gospel. We're not telling the truth about the gospel. The deepest meaning of marriage is that it is an enacted parable of another marriage, and that is the marriage of Christ and his bride. We represent him. We're telling a story about him. His marriage is the ultimate marriage. Ours is the parable. Ours is the analogy, not the other way around. Can anyone really know that definition of marriage apart from God's revelation of this mystery? Our sexuality is to be a true representation of Christ and his bride, the church. I have alluded to this and probably will again, but when I stand here, everybody knows the analogy that this is like the dinner table, right? We have food, the family has gathered, the father has provided the food, but there is another analogy in communion. And that's the marriage bed. As Robert Capon puts it, the two geographic centers of the home are the table and the bed, the two flat surfaces. One is where the whole family gathers to eat, and another is where the husband and wife, the bride and the groom, which is the church and Christ, gather for intimate covenant renewal. So there's another picture going on here. And it's only for the bride. That's why only baptized people can come to the table. And so Christ and the church, we come here and on a regular basis we renew covenant and we make love. We enter into intimate communion with our groom and we remember, which is part of what sex does for a married couple. They can be busy, they can have a lot going on, they can even be a little grumpy sometimes, and then they have sex, and suddenly they're nicer to each other. Something magic happens. They remember, oh yeah, this is the person I love, that loves me, and they, he just told me how beautiful I am, and you know, and that felt good, and that was nice. More about that later in the second half tonight. Still dealing with theology. So thus, sexual sins, that is doing things our way, that's that's a good definite. What are sexual sins? Doing sex my way, not God's way. Now, if, if God's ways have become my ways, then those two are the same. But if they're not the same, then there's only God's way, which is the right way, and then my way is the wrong way. 
So doing sex our way, apart from God's way, is a lie, and it's theft. It profanes the name of God, and it dishonors what God has made holy. So the Lord's table, again, a place of intimacy. We bear his name. And when we use the sexuality that God gave us, which is ultimately for his own glory, we not only defile ourselves, uh, we also blaspheme his name. So our sexuality is given to bring him glory and is to be used in a manner that pleases him. I'm going to go for maybe five more minutes and we'll take a break and then we'll come back and pick up some of this. But the uh, pursuit of potential, I I, kind of want to shift here and talk a little bit about premarital relations since we have some single folks with us. And if you're not in a relationship, at some point you will be. But the pursuit of a potential relationship between a man and a woman is sexual in nature. Um, being male and female is at the core of the mutual attraction and our sexuality is an inescapable part of the relationship. And so when God created Adam and Eve, he gave them two powerful gifts to be used to exercise dominion over the earth, the glorifying. He gave them creative minds to rule the world, name the animals, uh, tend the garden, so forth. And he gave them sexuality which was to be used to be, uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then I always tell this joke that God said to Adam, you know, I got good news and bad news. Good news, I gave you a brain so you could multiply and fill the earth. And I gave you a penis so you could be fruit, uh, have sex and multiply and make more images. And Adam said, what's the bad news? And he said, I only gave you enough blood to operate one of those at a time. So, um, that's as rough as it's going to get tonight. So, um, so these two, who were to be one flesh, were called in to glorify God with their minds and their bodies, and their sexuality was crucial to their calling, and God, again, invented sex, called it good, but sin wrecked the relationship. It affected both the mind and sexuality of man and woman. And these two powerful gifts became destructive forces. Think about a chainsaw. In the hands of someone who really knows how to use it, doing it, using it for the right purpose, they can cut down trees and make lumber and build houses and do all kinds of things. But hand that chainsaw to an eight-year-old and crank it up and let him run through the house with it. The chainsaw is no less powerful. The problem is the operator. And sex is that way. And so this powerful thing, uh, that's really human history is the story of the destructive force of mankind's thinking and sexuality. Every sort of human misery is the result. God's design designed sex to be a force for good within the boundaries of covenant marriage. Outside that covenant, great harm is done. The world is filled with examples of this. Sexual sins such as lust, 
Pornography, fornication, adultery, homosexuality, and more have brought a great deal of guilt and sorrow upon many. That which was intended for joy, pleasure, and procreation has been turned upside down. The entire abortion industry is the result of sexual promiscuity. So we have people being murdered daily by the thousands because we don't want God telling us what to do when it comes to sex. Pastor Wilson has described marriage as, quote, a sexual relationship in the context of a covenant. That is marriage. It's sexual because it involves a man and a woman. The physical attraction to one another is there from the beginning, but at this point, there is no covenant to establish order and protection. The covenant comes from God, and it is a form of government that establishes a household and assigns duties and responsibilities to everyone. In this context, the sexual relationship can safely flourish and grow. The physical sexual aspect of a husband and wife's relationship sets them apart from all the other relationships they have. So you've got a man and a woman, a particular man and a particular woman who enter into a lifelong covenant, vow to one another, till death do us part, now those two people can get alone in a room and take off all their clothes and enjoy the benefits and beauties and all the subordinate aspects of sex and do so with abandon, basically, to the glory of God. That is the intent. Sex is one of the blessings of marriage. Again, Hebrews 13.4, the marriage bed is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators, that is people who have sex outside of marriage, and adulterers, that is people who are married who are having sex with other people, God will judge. Prior to entering the marriage covenant, a man and a woman are not married. They're not married in God's eyes. That's one of the favorite. Oh, we just love each other so much. We think we're married in God's eyes. No, you're not. You'll be married in God's eyes when you are married in everybody else's eyes. Um, So regardless of how much affection, desire, and commitment they have toward one another, they'll be married when they're actually married in the eyes of everyone. It's a public event. Sex before marriage is a sin because it is a lack of conformity unto and transgression of the law of God, period, end of sentence. Now, we're going to take a break, and we're going to come back and start shifting a little bit more, and we're going to talk about what God, again, some more about what God says about sex before marriage, and then we'll look at sex after marriage. So let's take a break, and we will come back in about 10 minutes at the top of the hour. All right, we want to talk about, again, at this point, we're still talking about premarital relationships. So, uh, so parents, as you're thinking about this with your, your young men and young ladies and how to guide them and, and what, what the Scripture says about how to think about that, we're going to spend uh, a good bit of our time on that 
but there's implications for marital sex. Uh, but we're going to talk about why it's so important to do this right on the front end, because it will impact uh, your marital relationship as well. We'll see how and why in just a second. So when sexual activity is introduced, everything is thrown into a blender and confusion is a result in a relationship if it's not in the context of marriage. Remember, mar the marriage bed is undefiled, which means what? Anything outside that is defiled. I'm reading a, a book of prayers and liturgies that I really like called Every Moment Holy, and there's a quote in there by Wendell Berry that I won't quote exactly, it's paraphrased, that basically says, all of life is sacred unless it's been defiled. And, and since sin has defiled everything, our job is to reclaim it and for, it, for us to make it sacred again. So sex is sacred. That is, it's devoted to God. That's its purpose, the glory of God. So the, mar uh, the marriage bed is the goal. And the marriage bed, uh, as, as uh, Robert Capon has pointed out in his excellent book, Bed and Board, cannot be practiced until you're married. You can't enjoy the marriage bed until you're married. There isn't a marriage bed. There's just a bed. So the marriage bed's undefiled. Can't enjoy that till you're married. Um, you'll have plenty of time to practice this after you're married. Um, so while you're waiting for God to give you a child, uh, when you're ready to you know, start having children, uh, I always just joke and say, well, just practice. Practice makes perfect. So enjoy one another. That's uh, Remember, that's part of, Part of it is procreation, part of it's this, part of it's this, part of it's this. Any or all of those are just fine as long as this is being remembered as the overarching thing. So um, you'll have plenty of time to practice that sex, but before that, sex is defiled and only muddies the water of the relationship. In preparation for a lifetime of marriage, a couple is seeking to know God's will for their future, right? They're getting to know one another at a fundamental level. So when you meet somebody, your fundamental question ought to be about this other person of the opposite sex is, is this the person that I'm supposed to marry, that I'm supposed to make have this covenant bond with? And I'm trying to answer that question before I have the covenant bond. I don't get to jump ahead and start doing things uh, that are only reserved for the covenant bond because I don't have a covenant yet. I haven't made any commitments. They haven't made any commitments. I'm trying to figure out, is this God's will? They have to learn about the other person and learn about themselves. Uh, what you really need to practice right now is the thing you're going to need the most after you're married, and that is keeping promises. Right now, of course, you, would, you wouldn't go to bed with anybody else, you think, but later on, and it's not always that clear, and then these little exercises in fidelity will be worth something in terms of chastity and trust. You think you're going to need some trust in your marriage? Well, how are you going to establish that trust? How about you make a promise and keep it now? 
passage that I really urge premarital couples to memorize and learn, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. So parents, make note, this is a passage your, your kids ought to know. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. They ought to know it well enough, not literally to say it backwards, but almost. It ought to be that embedded. Uh, why? Because wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his ways, Psalm 119, 911, by taking heed thereto according to thy word, thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. These verses in your Bible on your shelf will not help you. Not much. Uh, somewhere in the Bible it says this is wrong. But these words in your heart will be with you wherever you go. And then when you have that moment where you have an opportunity to make that decision whether to take the next step in the wrong direction, these words will guard you. What are they? So do you want to know the will of God? That's what I always ask a couple sitting in front of me for the first time, right? Do you want to know the will of God? Everybody says. That was a nod for those listening on tape, a nod in the affirmative. 1 Thessalonians 4 through, through 8. 4, 3 through 8. For this is the will of God. When you see that, that's a, that's a cue. That's a tip-off that you're about to get a direct answer to that question. You said you want to know the will of God? This is the will of God. By the way, I don't know of any passage that's any more direct to this question about premarital sex than this one. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. What is sanctification? To make you holy, to set you apart unto God. The glory of God. This is the will of God, your sanctification. And in case you're not quite sure, uh, Paul's now going to get very specific that you... Remember, still answering the question, will of God, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. That's God's will. And then he's, oh, in case you don't know what that is, let's explain it. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. So let's pause on that a moment. Or I'll tell you what, we'll come back to this. Let me just read the whole passage, and I'll come back and unpack it a little bit. Not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has given us his Holy Spirit. Boy, there is a bunch in here. It'd be, again, hard to think of a passage more specific uh, to this question. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to skip my notes and talk. I've just talked about this so many times. A lot of you have already heard it uh, if you've been in my premarital counseling, but it won't hurt to review. So each of you should know how to possess his own body to be in control of your own body, to possess it, to be 
to rule over it, over its lust, over its passions, in sanctification and honor. So I like to say to everybody, and I'm going to say especially to young ladies, you should make up your mind. I'll talk to you three right here. And uh, yeah, I'll talk to you three right here. You decide. But you, God has rules. You should follow those rules. Your parents have rules. You should follow those rules. But you should have rules too that are consistent with God's rules and their rules. And you decide you think enough of yourself that nobody else is going to take away from you what doesn't belong to them. You honor yourself first. Oh, but I love him so much. No, well, we're going to speak to that in a minute. This isn't about love. This is about lust. And you say, you know what, if some guy, what happens if some guy takes you out or he's visiting with you and he uh, decides to make a move? You need to decide ahead of time whether you're going to give in to that or you're going to slap his face and say, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not yours yet. Now, there could be other things in between those two. I'm illustrating a point. you got to decide to honor yourself. If you don't honor yourself, if you don't think more of yourself than that, don't be surprised when others decide to dishonor you as well. You don't have to be mean or unkind. You just need to be clear. Okay? You desire to be desired. Um, I used to, I told Rachel I was going to embarrass her in the second half. I used to tell Rachel and uh, Kristen when they were teenagers that someday when a guy showed up and said he was interested in them, I was gonna first thing I was gonna ask is, do you want to have sex with my daughter? Now I didn't do that. <laughs> I did not do it when you showed up. And if he says no, I'm going to send him away because he's weird. <laughs> and if he says yes, I'm going to ask, what? Of course, I said, until I got to know Andrew, and then, then I did that. Um, but because it's obvious, you know, right? Of course you do. If you don't, then why are you here? Was that nervous laughter, Aaron? No, but he would want to now. (laughs) Um, You don't have to ask because you already know the answer, okay? So that's why fathers should take charge and be sure they are gracious and kind and all that, but also uh, say, I know know young men because I were one, and I know the thoughts they have. Um. And they're not all bad. You Look, I, I want you to, women desire to be desired and men desire, and that's not, that's a good combination when it's for the glory of God and it's a really bad combination when it's not. And since we're sinners, we kind of go from one to the other pretty quick. Um, so, um, Possess your own vessel in sanctification. What does that mean? Holy unto God. I belong to God. My body belongs to God. I am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Guys and girls. And in honor. 
I'm going to show myself some respect by having my own standards that are consistent with God's. I'm going to adopt God's standards for my standards. I don't care what my girlfriends or my guy friends, I don't care what they're saying, I don't care what they're doing, this is what I'm doing. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Second, all right, go on. Now the comparison, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. In other words, I don't want you believers to act like unbelievers. They give in. They let their passions take control and decide, tell them what's right and what's wrong. You don't be like that. Don't be like unbelievers. You are a Christian. that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. Now, when the Bible talks about brother, it is inclusive of the female. When we talk about individuals in the Bible, we are all sons of God. When we talk about the collective, we are all the bride of Christ. So, if I can translate this, No one should take advantage of and defraud his brother or sister in this matter. What does it mean to defraud? What's another word we would use? To steal. You don't get to take what isn't yours. Oh, but I love her. It has nothing to do with it. She's not yours. Oh, but I love him. doesn't have anything to do with it. He's not yours yet. Almost, maybe. We're engaged. We're getting married tomorrow. Yep, well, it ain't tomorrow yet. Tomorrow she'll be yours. Then you can have sex with her. Before that, you're taking what is not yours to take. That's why when a dad walks down the aisle in a Christian marriage and and the preacher says, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And he says, her mother and I do, or I do. He is now releasing her from under his covenant care and handing her over to his, this groom's covenant care because before he gets the privilege of making love to her, he also gets to take the responsibility and the duty of caring for her and protecting her and providing for her. He doesn't just get to use her. Now, it goes on, because if you do steal, because the Lord is the avenger of everyone who steals. Now, maybe your parents don't know what's going on, but God does. Okay, you're sitting in the front seat making out, and God's in the back seat watching. Children's catechism, you remember? Can you see God? What's the answer? No, but he always sees me. It's one of the best catechism questions to teach a child and for every grown-up to know, too. I'm never alone. So, God says, I am the avenger. That's pretty scary. (laughs) I'm the avenger of everyone who disregards what I'm telling you here. And as Paul says, as we forewarned you and testified, so if you didn't know this before, tonight you now know it, from 1 Thessalonians 4. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. We're back to the ultimate. 
glory of God. Two more things. Verse 8. Therefore, you heard this argument. Therefore, he who rejects what we've just said does not reject man, but God. God said so. We said sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. To disregard what's been said here is to say, God, you don't get to tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do on my terms. And then he says, you've rejected God. And remember, he said he will avenge those who do that. And then I love the last phrase, very positive. So this same God who's warned us has also given us his Holy Spirit. Resisting sexual temptation is hard. That's kind of an understatement. And he says, but I gave you the Holy Spirit. I gave you a supernatural power to enable you. And if you'll do what I say, so I'm going to give you some practical advice here. Besides memorizing this passage, Parents, you should make rules, but young men, young ladies, you make rules for yourself. If you're never where you can have sex with somebody, you won't. Ain't happen. We're never in a place where we're alone, in the dark, out of sight. Now, does that mean you can't have a private conversation? Oh, you can have, there's all kinds of places to have private conversations. but not where you can have sex. Not out in a car. Oh, we were just talking, and next thing you knew, we were holding hands, and then after that, and then, you know, hey, then our brains shut down, and our bodies took over, and then now we're really sorry. And we're crying, and we're apologizing and asking for forgiveness until we do it next time. Because once you cross that threshold, it's really hard to back up. So if you run, if the, if I always say a, a relationship is like a staircase with how do you do and I do, one at the bottom, one at the top, assuming you get married, you need to know how long that staircase is. Is this a year? Is this four years? What, that's why I don't like long engagements. Because if you run halfway up the staircase in the first six weeks and you got another year and a half to go, you're in big, big trouble. That's why... Young teenagers shouldn't be dating, in my opinion. They can't do anything about They can't do anything but get in trouble. They can't get married. They can't pay for it. They don't have a job. They can't have a wife and a house and a car payment. And they can't do that. So why get involved in a relationship where the sex drive is what's pushing it forward, but the ability to... Fulfill that in a lawful, godly way is not even on the map yet. Now, what if, what if uh, you're close? Okay, well, if you're within a year of being able to do all that reasonably, about to finish school or get a job, or all, I'm not opposed to people getting married young. We got married at 19, largely for this reason, because getting married was better than what would happen if we didn't get married. 
Do I think that's a great idea to get married at 19? Not really, but it's better than the alternative. Um, excuse me a minute while I look over my notes. Lots of bad things happen with sexual sin, pregnancy, disease, broken relationships. The person you're fooling around with or even kissing who you're not marrying might not end up being your husband or wife. Now you had sex with somebody else's wife or husband. Oh, but we were in love. We just knew we were getting married. You know what? You'll know you're getting married when you're married. You can be pretty sure. You can be almost certain. It's the day before the wedding. You're not quite there yet. You've got to cross the finish line. The finish line is the finish line. And as long as you're on this side of the finish line, you ever seen anybody, one of those videos of fails, you know, the guy's running the 10-mile marathon and he stumbles because he gets cocky at the very end and he falls on his face and three people pass him right at the end. Pride goes before a fall, a haughty spirit before stumbling. What if they die? And there's a lot, there's other things that can happen here. But because it muddies the water, then you might end up marrying someone that because you're caught up in the pleasures of sex and the bonding of sex. And sure enough, if you get pregnant, the baby uh, might be another reason people get married, right? Because somebody got pregnant before they were married. Maybe they were just not thinking about getting married. Now what do we do? Do we get married? What if we don't love each other? What if we're really not committed? We were just having sex. But now we've got a human being here we've got to take care of. So there's all kinds of things that can go wrong. Disease. Person you're having sex with, who else did they have sex with? What are you catching? Are we against sex? No. Big fan. Just like God. Yes, sir. Right. Well, and that, that is another, that's one, one more problem is when we do things when we're young, then, and I was telling somebody, uh, not in this church, I was talking with somebody who had gone out and <clears throat> had premarital sex, and I said, okay, you know, one of the consequences of this is someday when you do meet the person you're going to marry, you're going to have to have this conversation with them. You're going to get to tell them what you did because otherwise you'd be defrauding them. Now, they may still marry you. They may forgive you. That's fine. But you do have to have that conversation. Um, so one other thing, the young people here, and um, it's important that you note that your entire body is sexual, not just what we usually think of as the private parts, our breasts, uh, genitals, lips, you know, kissing, that kind of thing. But you need to understand that your skin is sexual. Your body, your whole body is sexual because it's you are sexual. It's who you are. It's not just some isolated part of you. Now, obviously, there are some parts that are specifically designed for sexual expression that are more so. And just the biology of that, God puts nerve endings in certain parts of our body for one purpose, let me just say it. Men, 
women, God put some nerve endings in your body parts for one purpose. Pleasure. Nothing wrong with that. God liked it. God invented that. But we just need to say it. That's what it's there for. And when you save it for your husband and your wife, then hopefully you can give yourself to your husband and wife and go ahead and recognize that God gave you that and he wants you to enjoy that. Now you're going to find when you're married it's not always that easy, (laughs) that sex is sometimes a little more complicated than what we imagine. And actually I think God designed it that way too, so we have to work at it. Like learning to play an instrument beautifully. It's not... It doesn't always happen the same way every time. So, but something as simple as holding hands, and I want to be clear, I'm not an advocate that says, oh, you can't ever touch before you're married. Again, the minute he walks in the door or you, you know, a guy and a girl get together and they're courting or dating or I don't care what you call it as long as you're following God's rules. Um, Once that happens, it's a sexual relationship. Just sitting across the room is enough to make your heart race. Your imagination can get your your blood pumping. So you don't even need to touch for there to be sexual energy. A phone call, a love letter, uh, again, just a thought. And so there will be a point when you sit next to each other and you hold hands or you hug. Just don't kid yourself and think, oh, we just... When you start using the word just, that's when you tend to get in trouble because all of it's connected. And if you don't have clear boundaries, that's why I would advocate early relationship, phase one I call it, no touching. Why? We're still trying to figure out is there any possibility. My first question is, is this person going to make somebody a godly, kind, diligent spouse? I got to answer that question first. And I don't need to touch somebody to answer those questions. In fact, if I touch them, I might miss the answers. Maybe now they're just kind because they want to touch other parts of me or me to touch other parts of them. I don't want to cloud the issue. It's exciting, it feels good. And so in this context, Hugs, sitting close, are expressions of sexuality. It stimulates more sexual desire. So boundaries, wisdom, and accountability are essential if a couple is to negotiate these waters safely. So um, as you can see, I got, and this is half of what I was going to bring, so there's a lot to be said here. Uh, and I want to leave some time for Q&A and a couple of other questions. So let me turn to this question. Um, um, Marital sex. Now you're married. Um, Marriage is about communion. Couples here know that I've recently counseled If I could emblazon words in your home, for every home, and say, this is a place of loving communion. 
That's the mission statement. Everything we do should contribute to that. Work, doing the dishes, taking out the trash, making love, paying the bills, raising the kids, having people over, worshiping. Everything we do should serve that purpose of being a loving communion which reflects the Trinity, which is an eternal loving communion or community. So a man and woman get together, get married, and now they have a little community, two. The two are one. Then before long, you know the old, old rhyme, first comes love, then comes marriage, here comes Sam pushing a baby carriage. Okay? Now we're three. Or however many. Okay? A little city. A little community. A communion of love. So, one of the things I love telling folks just about to get married is the good news is you're about to, after you say I do, you will be making love 24 7. Wow. Well, it's great, but it's not that easy. Because like the communion table, you're either coming or going. We either just had communion, and as we leave and head out the door, we're reflecting on that and hopefully refocused on our commitment to our groom, to Christ, and ready to live. And then what happens? Life gets in the way, and you've got to pay the bills, and got to study for a test, and go to work, and mow the grass. And, and then we sin and we stumble and we don't feel as close to the Lord but then as we anticipate coming back next week we start thinking about it and I need to ask for forgiveness from so and so and I need to get myself right before I come to the table so that it'll be meaningful so we're either coming to the table or going from the table Uh, and if I can now use that analogy to marital sex the husband and the wife are either coming are either headed toward the bed or coming from the bed. Um, as I already mentioned, sometimes you can be busy and distracted, and but you go make love with your wife or your husband and something happens and you feel closer and you feel a little kinder and you feel this bond that takes place. And now this is, think of sex as just that snapshot of, the communion that's going on or should be going on all the time. What if we just ate bread and drank wine? Okay, that's over. We'd be missing the point, right? What is the bread and the wine? It's a picture of what ought to be true all the time. Communion. It's a reminder. It's a picture. It's an image If all we do is drink bread and wine and walk out the door and forget, then we really didn't have communion here either, did we? We just had bread and wine. So if all a husband and wife do is have sex, even if it felt good, but they don't get along and they don't, they're not kind to each other, they don't have communion in the, when they're talking about the finances or the kids or life and they don't enjoy doing other things together, then their sex is not any different than what dogs do. And we're not animals. We're the image bearers of God. We're called to communion. 
So sex is intended to bond us in covenant, and God uses pleasure to do that. And by helping us avoid sin, it increases the bond and the commitment to one another. And even when we have children, that also increases the bond because it increases the commitment, right, Um, and the duties. Um, So first point, then, is communion. Second point is married, married couples are making, I like the term making love. It's not a biblical term, but I think it describes the picture of what should be going on. We're sacrificing for each other. We're giving to each other. This is unique to this man and this woman. We don't share this bed with anybody else. And this part of our relationship is unique to us. Now, men and women are different. That's obviously physically. But their sexual needs are different. And I think this is kind of an interesting thing. Again, I think it was Doug Wilson who talks about men are microwaves and women are crockpots when it comes to sex. Um, so their styles can be different in terms of uh, uh, how they... Think of this as learning to dance, though. And so part of what has to happen is then I have to learn how to give and not just get. It's not just about satisfying me or her being satisfied. It's both. How do we learn to do this in harmony? How do we learn? I can use, we've got a, uh, several musicians here. As you're learning to play your instrument, the goal is perfect harmony. And that's not always easy to achieve, right? And even sometimes, I'm guessing, um, Chayton, you tell me if I'm wrong with the violin, that uh, there are times when you, you've tuned it and you've played and it just seemed like you hit every note just right. It was gorgeous. And then you play the exact same song tomorrow, and it's off a little bit. Okay? Maybe maybe the humidity changed the tune or the tuning, or you just, for some reason, something you did really well yesterday, you're not quite as good today. And sex is that way. I'm telling you married couples this. That's normal. You know, last night you made love and it was wonderful and romantic and we just delighted in each other. In fact, it was so good we think, well, let's do that again tonight. (laughs) And lo and behold, for some reason, you thought you did everything the same, but it wasn't the same. Why? Because people change from day to day. Your body changes, your mood changes. There's unknown factors. So, I like to point out that, and the reason I'm telling you this, you probably already know it, you've probably figured it out if you've been married, uh, and someday when you're married, you can file this away. Um, I'm going to define what I'm about to say, because it could be misinterpreted. There are different types of sex. Now, I don't mean by that, I mean still a husband and a wife. <laughs> I don't mean different types of sex in that way. But there are different types of sex, just like there are different types of meals. Sometimes there's filet mignon, and sometimes there's hamburger helper. Okay? Sometimes there's fast food, and sometimes there's that meal you sit down to for two hours, and it's a seven-course meal. That's okay. All of those are good. They serve different functions. I usually divide it into three categories. There's romantic sex. 
know, candlelight, soft music. Maybe you've planned the evening together, taking your time. Um, you, you know, look, I, I'm going to just, I'll stop here and pause and give you some advice. We have weekly communion. I recommend that couples have a set time that is weekly communion for themselves that includes sex. Now, look, I know that varies for a number of reasons. Number one, how old you are <laughs> uh, has something to do with it. But you can have sex every night. That's your business. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying if you said Thursday night is our normal date night that includes not just sex but time together. And we plan that and we set it apart. And to, to some degree we schedule around that. We try not to make other commitments. But sometimes life presses in. And the way you handle that is you say, hey, I know we have a date on Thursday night, a standing date. That's our night that we make sure that we're not waiting to make love at midnight. We're, we're going to the bedroom sooner. Uh, we're t- making sure we have privacy and doing all our preparation of taking our baths and showers and whatever we do to be ready and presentable and, and, and uh, respectful of one another. And uh, we thought about it all day, so we're a little more excited about it. Um, something comes up, and, you know, the, uh, the Landrums invited us over for supper Thursday night, and that's our date night. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you could do that, or you could say, you know, we really hadn't, been, hadn't seen the Landrums in a while, and I want to turn them down. Why don't we, could we just do our date night Friday night instead? So we don't just cancel it, we move it. We just adjust for life. So that because it, what I'm getting at is just like we have the Lord's table set as a priority, we don't, we don't just cancel the Lord's Supper. We look for, uh, we're going to make this a priority in our relationship because it's important. It's not just pleasurable, it's important for us to maintain that part of our relationship. Because sometimes as people get older and they have other, they're not doing what I talked about in the sermon this morning and now they're, they don't really like each other anymore and they're not having sex anymore. They're just living under the same roof. They're not, there's no communion here at all. The sex helps keep us on track. Um, now again, you can have more than that, but my, I, I would just recommend that, but be sure... You, uh, if something comes up, you don't feel well. You, you get sick. Be sure you let the other person know. Hey, I need. We need to postpone our date tonight. Um, let's. And we. I know we got something. The next night, and the next night, but the next available night is Monday night. So we'll have two dates next week. Whatever. Practical advice here. Recreational sex, that sounds kind of silly, but what I mean by that is spontaneous. It wasn't on the calendar. We're just playing with each other, enjoying one another. Maybe we're laughing, tickling each other, whatever. Sam, you like to be tickled, right? I remember that from when you were a little kid. He loved being tickled. Um, I don't know if we can recover. 
You can have fun. It doesn't all have to be high romance is what I'm saying. It can be what I call utilitarian, okay? I was counseling with a couple recently, uh, premarital, and I said something. Uh, and anyway, it was over the person. I said, was that too much? Uh, actually, quite a few couples in here have heard this talk. I said, was that too much? And the other one of the guys said, uh, I never thought I'd hear, hear Pastor Booth refer to a quickie. Um, so, yeah, sometimes there's just, you know, providing some physical release to your partner. It's not the same as what you did three nights ago on your date night. That's okay, too. There's different kinds of usefulness for this sexual bond, and every trip to the Lord's table is not identical, and every trip to the bed is not identical. Uh, here's a critical thing, mutual respect, physical and emotional. Again, it's learning the dance, learning your partner, knowing what's what works and what doesn't, and again, may not work tomorrow night and may have worked last night, um, but showing mutual respect. That's what the Bible teaches. Your body, uh, men, husbands, belongs to your wife. Wife, your body belongs to your husband. That's the explicit teaching of Scripture. And so there's this tension, uh, a paradox, if you will, in the Bible when it comes to sexual relations that says, on the one hand, sex is for pleasure. You're going to receive pleasure. Remember, God gave you those nerve endings for pleasure. That's the only reason he gave them to you. But on the other hand, you're to give pleasure, and that might mean sometimes denying yourself. So it's both. There's this kind of attention. It's not just about me, but the irony is as we give ourselves to one another, the Bible says, for example, husbands, when you love your wife, you love yourself. When you're considerate and kind and gracious and patient and not forcing yourself in this situation. Okay. On the other hand, you're to be giving and gracious and maybe even pushing your comfort zone a little bit from time to time. Okay. This is not something you're sharing with the world or anybody. Those are the private things I was talking about. You're not discussing that with anybody unless by mutual consent you agree, hey, we're having a problem or we have a question or an issue we can't resolve. Would it be all right if we go talk to so-and-so? So don't be talking about your sex life with anybody unless your spouse has agreed to it and thinks it's a good idea. And maybe it's to talk to your pastor. Maybe it's to talk to a friend. Maybe the woman needs to talk to another woman. The guy needs to talk to another guy, but only with consent. Cleanliness is critical. The old saying, cleanliness is next to godliness, is true when it comes to sex. Show respect. I had a couple of years ago, not here, many years ago, who was having, they were having sexual trouble. They'd been married 10 years, and she was very, very shy, and we sat there for quite a while trying to figure out what was going on. At some point, I think he got up to go to the restroom, and she said, he has bad breath. Didn't you tell him? No, I, I, I couldn't do that. I said, so you could not have sex with him, 
but you couldn't tell him he had bad breath. Now, I wasn't quite that harsh with her. I was very gracious with her. But she just couldn't confront him about that, and he was a doofus. He, she said, well, he'll drink beer, and then he wants to make love, and I can't stand the smell of beer. That's why I say cigars are great birth control. Um, that's another subject. Huh? Did you say amen? <laughs> you said amen. Okay. Um, mutual respect, physically and emotionally, cleanliness, and then the question of frequency. Again, that has to be worked out with every couple and different times of life. Let me kind of conclude this discussion about sex, and then we'll have some, a short time for questions, whatever. Um, life changes, okay? There's the newlyweds, um, you know, the joke is if you put a bean in a jar every time you have sex the first year you're married, um, and then take a bean out every time you have sex after the first year, you'll never empty the jar. That's a joke. That's not really true, but you can laugh. Um, thank you. Um, frequency changes with life, okay? I guarantee you, you get two, three, ten, however many kids you're going to have. Kids have a lot to say about that. They have a way of interrupting you. Be sure you get a lock on your bedroom door, preferably a deadbolt. And teach your kids to stay away when your bedroom door is closed. Okay? Uh, at, we say, unless you're dying, don't come. You know, if the door's closed, you just stay away. But we had friends one time, they said, well, they weren't making love, but they were getting dressed. And one husband was in the shower, and the kids, the door was closed, and kids knew to stay away. And all of a sudden, one of them was banging on the door. And the brother, had, they, the little daughter, this horrible, had cut his finger off. They were, she was using loppers outside, and he was holding the limb, and she cut the end of his finger off. And he said, I was naked, and you just got out of the shower, and we're trying to, you know, but they knew you don't, you don't come to the door if the door is closed. But this, there are exceptions. Um, but so you have children, you have sickness. That's why we make promises in the covenant, for better or for worse, sickness helps. Sometimes... So you're in the military and you're separated or you're away for two or three weeks because of business travel. There's all kinds of things that can come up in life as you get older. Again, health issues. Um, at some point in life, you live long enough, you might not be able to have sex. Um, you may have back troubles or other dysfunctions. It happens. But, but if, you've, if you've bonded and you're committed... Sex is not marriage. It is a blessing and a benefit of marriage. But you know what? There are a lot of things in life that were benefits of being young, you know, that go away. And the Bible talks about in Ecclesiastes, part of being old is desire starts to fade. Physically, your hormones change. You don't have as much. That's actually a blessing, I think. <laughs> it's uh, if you If you have the drive of a... You know, your 20s and 30s, your whole life, that, I could see that might be problematic. Um, so keep that in mind, too. That, uh, And I guess the last thing I'll say for now is learn to talk about sex with your partner. Not both while you're having sex, 
it's okay to say, no, that doesn't feel good, or to, to whisper sweet nothings in each other's ears, or to have some level of interaction that way, but that's not the time probably to have a discussion about um, certain aspects of sex. The time to do that is when you're, you know, the next evening when you're sitting down and going to talk about your schedule for the week and you're going to pray together and read the Bible and say, hey, could we talk about our sex life? How are we doing? Is there something that I'm doing that you don't like or that's a problem or is there something we could do to make it better? Let's just have an adult conversation just like we do about the checkbook or about the kids or about our schedule. I'm not saying every week, but every now and then, actually talk about it. Is, your, is our sex life satisfying to you? What could we do to improve it? What am I doing that make, makes it less satisfying? If we just learn to do that, we get comfortable with it. What happens is we're not comfortable, and so we, we either freeze up or we don't do it or we're too nervous to do it. But if you just do it like three times, the fourth time it'll be easy. It'll just be natural and normal. It's just another one of the topics we need to talk about from time to time because it's life. It's an important part of life. All right, questions about sex, and I have one other area I was going to cover here. About It's not about sex directly. Anybody? Comments, questions, information? Something you think we needed to cover that we didn't? Oops, that's going to stay on there, isn't it? (laughs) Anything? All right, if you think of something later, send me an email. Uh, As I like to say when I usually talk to couples, and I guess I actually violated that a little bit by teaching this lesson tonight, I usually say, okay, we've had this talk except the talk I usually have is even more graphic than this. Uh, But I say, I won't be talking to you about this anymore because that's your business now. But sometimes it's good to have a grown-up have a talk with us about such things to save us the trouble of having to figure it out all by ourselves. Uh, There are other things to figure out and talk about. Like I said, we're not going into all that tonight in a group setting. But there are a lot of, I mean, I could think of a hundred other questions and topics here to discuss, but I mainly wanted you to see that the Bible has taught us how to think about this in the big picture sense, that it's good, that it's honoring to God, that it's a blessing when it's done right, and that it's a curse and a misery and trouble when it's not. That should help you, help me, move forward and receive it for the blessing it's intended to be. All right. So Bobby, is okay if I answer your questions you sent me now that I've identified you as the asker? Okay. All right. These are totally change the subject. We've got a few minutes left here. How does a wife say you were out of line, you were wrong for, you fill in the blank, and indeed, the husband was wrong, and he says, no, I was not wrong. You need to mind your own wife business. Is that accurate? Okay. And my answer, I'm going to just give quick answers here when we can fill it out. Well, the first answer is, how 
so how does the wife say this? Well, first she says it respectfully, not in a snarky way, not in a gotcha way, not in a you idiot kind of way, uh, you moron. I uh, can't believe anybody would think that. Um, how stupid can you be? Um, that you can't have that attitude. You're going to be respectful. Honey, I love you so much. But it seems to me that you got this one wrong. And here's why. Would you hear me? Now, again, just like you're going to teach your children how to disagree with you or challenge you, there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. So respect. Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love. Love is sacrificial. I'm looking out for your good. I'm not trying to put you down. I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm not trying to make you feel stupid. Uh, ladies, I'd say to you, because that's what this question's about, is remember, most of us men are little boys. And we have big egos. And, you you know, we get our feelings hurt, our egos hurt really easy. Um, and I'm not saying you have to cater to that all the time. Sometimes you need to go ahead and just call it. But um, we're pretty sensitive, though we don't like to admit that. Which reminds me, by the way, one thing I did want to cover on the sex subject in marriage. How do you let somebody down? You go to bed. It's not date night. He leans over. He's got his hands on you, ladies. And you know what he wants because that's what he always wants. And you don't, you're not particularly in the mood, you're exhausted, you've had a hard day, you've, you know, had to tote water from the creek and all that stuff. And how do you tell him no? Well, you can lay there for 10 minutes and not respond. And then finally, finally, after 10 minutes, he gets the message and rolls over in a pout. Uh, and because, you know, he thinks he's the greatest lover in the world and he can't imagine why you're not responding to your advances. So here's the way you do that. You say, honey, I love you so much. You're such a stud. But I'm exhausted. Could we have a date tomorrow night? The Bible says hope deferred makes the heart sick. Because he was wanting that tonight, and you just told him no, but you told him in such a way that he's now hopeful. That if he'll wait, if he'll defer, if he'll deny himself, that things will be better tomorrow night or Friday night or whenever the date is. So that's just a little wisdom. And it works the other way, believe it or not, later in life. Uh, so uh, learn to be respectful in how you communicate. And that kind of fits to some degree, with this. So let me finish the answer to that question, though. The wife, so when he says, no, I was not wrong, you need to mind your own wife business. I thought that was an interesting way to put that. So my answer to that is, the wife is a gift from God to be his helper, and part of that help sometimes includes correction. This is often her wife business is correcting me. That doesn't mean I always like it. That means she always does it in the best way. But if she's being respectful, if I am doing something wrong and she doesn't correct me, she's not loving me and, and she's not doing her wife business. Her wife business is partly to keep me from being a moron or to doing something wrong or stupid. 
And if we've developed a great relationship, partly with our sexual relationship, which is not just sex, but our whole relationship, if we're in loving communion, then she should be able to correct me without me getting defensive and telling her to shut up. Next scenario, the wife says, you were out of line, you were wrong for, and he was not wrong, he was right, and he says, and he says, no, I was not wrong. Wife needs to know he's right, but she's too stubborn to see that he was correct. So we're kind of reversing the situation. Well, the problem is usually that there's a disagreement over who's right and who isn't. That's usually what most disagreements are over. But if it's obvious that the husband was right in this scenario and the wife refuses to acknowledge it, then she's simply in rebellion and she's not submitting to her husband and respecting her husband as God requires. And so I'm not sure what to do if she just refuses to see that he's right. Um she still has an obligation to show respect to her husband. So um, pride gets in the way frequently of all of this. It's, uh, I don't want to lose. I don't want to give in. I don't want to, I need to win. Which, by the way, is another thing, just a little tip. Try to avoid personal pronouns. The word you usually will change the attitude of the other person. You make me mad when you, um, instead of it, it up, uh, the illustration I always give is, it makes me so mad when you slam the screen door. I guess we don't have screen doors anymore. But um, How about, it always makes me jump when the door slams. Oh, I'll be more careful, sorry. But if I say, you make me mad when you slam the door, I didn't slam the door. You know, now now we have a. You're, I got to defend myself when I when the you gets involved. So a little bit of wisdom in how we communicate is uh, is helpful. I don't know if that answered your question exactly, but it's it's just say you know it, part of it's what I dealt with this morning. Another one. Wife says you were out of line. You were wrong for whatever. And indeed, he knew he was wrong, and he does not want to apologize nor admit that he that it was wrong. He just wants to fly over it but does it over and over. Yes, I know I'm wrong, but you're wrong too when you do such and such, so you need to leave me alone. You know, basically, if uh, you stop trying to fix me and I'll stop trying to fix you, well, then don't get, don't get married. You don't need a husband or a wife. God thought you did need a husband or a wife. That's why he gave them to you, partly because he knew you need fixing. You couldn't do it by yourself. You needed somebody. You, there was, you need a helper. So the Apostle Paul leads into his discussion regarding husbands and wives. He gives this counsel in Ephesians um, chapter 4. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. So before we get to wives, submit to your husbands. And husbands, lay down your life for your wife. Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Before that, he says, I'm going to speak to Christians men and women, submit to one another. That's, a, that's an attitude. That's the way I look at my wife. My wife is smarter than me, more talented than me, and more gifted than me in many, many ways. Now, I think, I could be mistaken, dear, I think I'm smarter than her, 
more talented than her and more gifted than her in other ways. And together we serve each other. And when I see her that way and she sees me that way, now do we ever get crossways on that? Yes. Why? Because we're sinful and prideful and we get selfish. But when we're not selfish, when we back up and say, you know, she is the single, apart from Christ himself and the Holy Spirit, she's the single greatest gift I have ever had and ever will have. God gave her to me because he thought I needed her. And when I am ungrateful toward her, I'm also ungrateful to God. So perspective is critical, I think, in us learning how we look. You start looking at your spouse as a gift from God, even when they're aggravating you. Maybe he's teaching you some of that patience you so desperately need. And that kindness that you struggle with showing when things aren't going your way. Or that diligence where you say, okay, I promised for better or for worse, and this is one of those worst days. All right, other questions, comments? We're out of time, but I'm happy to entertain anything. Next, not next Sunday, but the Sunday after, I'll do the second half of today's sermon, which will be applicable to this whole issue of communication. It's called Grieve Not the Holy Spirit. So today was imparting grace, and we'll be looking at how we keep from grieving the Holy Spirit um, in our communication with the, and attitudes and perspective toward one another. And again, that part of Ephesians is the part that is just before Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. So this is the prologue to the discussion about the family. It's setting the table for that. Father, we thank you for your word that corrects us, instructs us, guides us, feeds us, and enables us to think your thoughts after you. Help us to conform to that joyfully so that we might know the glorious benefits of faith believing you, believing what you say, and obedience, doing what you say, so that we might know all the benefits. We thank you for sex. We thank you for giving that as a gift. We repent uh, where we have sinned sexually, either in our minds or with our bodies, and we ask for forgiveness and cleansing and help us to think in a manner that indeed glorifies you with our sexuality. Bless the men and women, the husbands, the wives, the unmarried. Uh, bless us all with holiness and purity and, uh, and help us to honor you in the way we use this great gift of sexuality. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.